cue the jazzy music. Did, any, did everyone hear the jazzy music or is my audio system not working yet? No, it's working brilliantly, Bernard. And, and the thing is about your jazzy music is that I, I miss it when it's not there because what I've, what I've also found, oh, it's still, it's missing, it's missing, it's coming in. Turn it off now. I've turned it off. <laughs> <laughs> is that... Is that in the in the uh, all, is in the podcast that's almost as good as ours called "The Rest Is Politics" with Alistair Campbell and Rory Stewart? They have an incredibly annoying brain worm that I love listening to whenever I listen to it, and it drives me mad because it's as silly as ours, but ours is, is very cool. You know? Yeah, no, I'm I'm quite pleased with um, how ours sounds, and maybe I should just run it on on. No, no, I don't think so, Bernard. I mean, I think, Bernard, if, if, I mean, you are basically Jack Tame without any production is the problem. You know, you've got the good looks and talent of of Jack Tame, but you absolutely need a little bit of production. Yes, yes, and about 30 years on on him, actually. Um, Well, it's wonderful to see you, Peter, um, after your... It's wonderful to see you too, Bernard. Yeah, yeah. And it's wonderful to see Anne French, who I've missed. Now, can I just say, Bernard cancelled me last week. Really? I was giving you no, the day I'm, off. It's part of it's part of cancel culture, and I'm and I'm not going to take it anymore. Ah, you know, well, we're glad you're part back. Of the, part of the liberal left wing cancel cancel uh, cancel culture. I offered to leave uh, an incredibly important high level conference uh, at Millbrook, and and come in, but Bernard said no, no, no. Stick with your bloody take, CEOs take your and your Chris go, Luxons. Go and to the seventeenth hole. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I didn't go. Yeah, well, well, no, I think we call that the nineteenth hole. Ah, 19th, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, I yeah. those of us finished. who've actually been on a golf course that has more than 18 holes, like or more than nine holes, like probably you grew up with in Matamata. Yeah, yeah. No, I like the concrete ones with the um, the very small... With a dolphin and a, and a little... Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, no, it is really good to see you back and uh, plenty of news to talk about this week, uh, both here and overseas. And we've got yeah. um, Dr. Uh, Professor Robert Patman joining us. Uh, at about 5.15 to go uh, take a lap around the world as well because there's plenty going on there. Um, I wanted to start off with KiwiSaver, which has... So did I. Yeah, because it's been such a big story this week, um, lots of drama. It's pretty rare for the government to completely backflip in such oh, an embarrassing... Oh, it's not. It's, but it's not, it's not completely unusual for, for the government at the moment, A, to try and smuggle something really important past us all, Yep. In that naughty, naughty, naughty way. And I just don't believe that Jacinda could possibly have known that this was being done because she's so honest and clear and good. You know, that was just bloody outrageous. Yeah, well, uh, the, it didn't look very good, I have to say. So about one o'clock on Tuesday, out comes a press release saying, hey, we're going to put in an omnibus bill with lots of bits and pieces, including... Yeah, what would the man on the Clapham omnibus say about the omnibus bill? He'd say, what's happened to my bloody KiwiSaver, which is what he did. Yeah, she, and on the, on the face of it, it did look like a, just a technical change to applying GST to all pension fund uh, management fees. But as we found out, by looking at the regulatory impact statement, uh, Thomas Coughlin, Rob Stock and myself, that this was going to raise $225 million, which mm. was five times more than everything else that was actually mentioned in the press release. And according to the Financial Markets Authority, would reduce the amount of KiwiSaver savings in place by 2070 by $103 billion and other types of funds by a further $60 billion. Now, is this all, is this, is that, is that impact on KiwiSaver investments actually true though, Bernard? Because I have seen quite a few people attacking the New Zealand Herald, possibly including um, Thomas Coughlin, um, who, in, who in this case, who usually uses some literary bloody metaphor in all of his stories. But was did the Herald overstate what the impact was and that what this really was? Because yeah. it, it got presented to some extent as a new tax on KiwiSaver, as, a new ta- as, as, as opposed to a smoothing GST extension to fees that had previously been exempt. You should be working in PR for the government, Peter. This, this, oh, fuck, someone, would, sorry, <laughs> someone has to. to. That's right. Jesus. Uh, so um, oh, two things. Uh, the headline, which said something like $103 billion Kiwi saver tax grab, mm. was a little bit over the top. And... Yes, because it sounded like it was coming from our Kiwi saver as opposed to Craig's or Milford Asset Management. Yeah, but this estimate comes from the Financial Markets Authority. Mm. And it is true that over time... Who are well-known bloody socialists connected yeah, to the exactly, government, of course. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, non-partisan, definitely. Uh, over time, 
If you reduce the amount of money that you get in return from your money, then just as the most powerful force in the universe is compounding interest, by 2070, you have an enormous number. Yeah, I My- thought the most powerful force in the in the universe was actually the fees charged by um, the small cabal of New Zealand financial institutions that dominate the equities market. But you're absolutely right, Bernard, and this is just so interesting that... And, and in fact, at that Millbrook conference, um, and I can say this even though it was on Chatham House because I'm not going to attribute it to somebody, but the, one of the major investors in, in New Zealand, major investment managers in New Zealand, was talking about the tinkering and the interference with KiwiSaver and the damage that that causes over the long term, whether it's John Key, and I didn't even know about this, that he'd, you know, he'd reduced the, the amount of the government contribution. But these long-term saving plans need to be long-term and not messed up, and that seems to be what what the government's reaction was. That whatever whatever the truth was, the impression was that we were messing with people's long term savings. Yeah, I think both sides were in the wrong here. The government somehow blaming the media for misrepresenting stuff, blaming the opposition for making it a bigger thing than it should have been, and then saying that the only reason it was doing a backflip was to preserve the pristine reputation of KiwiSaver. Uh, because... Yeah, but it was a backfit with a twist and a and a double <laughs> pike, and they still went splash. Still went. That that was a bomb. You know, that was that yeah. was the splatter on the on the tummy. You know, that was a mess. Well, I think that, I think the pool had been emptied by the time that that all the fine. Well, it, it, it was quite interesting because David Parker. I, I I met him once at a judges thing because uh, I think he's Attorney General as well. Correct. You're, or is he minister, minister of Justice? No, no, Attorney, Attorney General. General. Yep. And he's really a clever chap, oh, yeah. subtle, mm. but he looked like a complete plonker like this. And it yeah. looked to me as though the um, Grant Robertson rather let him sort of take the take the fall. And Grant on the on the wireless was very sort of well, we, we just didn't want to damage Kiwis as though it was somebody else's policy. It was in his budget, for God's sake. Yeah, I think they both threw themselves under the bus, but David Parker did a really good job of it. He threw himself yeah. under the bus, got out, jumped under again. Um, yeah, said, and got dragged and got dragged to bloody, you know, right across the harbour bridge and up the other side. That's, yeah. that's right. While being bounced back and forth, tarmac against differential, you know, it was a real mess. Mm. And, but, uh, but you, you did one of the most, as usual so often, one of the most intelligent pieces about this you explained what the hell thing was actually going on yeah cut through. i've got the luxury really of the time of not having to madly put things out every five minutes and uh it was useful to put it into context of how this was a, a bad day for the government and a tax fail but the much much bigger tax fail one which this and just about every other tax move by both governments in the last few years has been designed to fix is this mm. hole we have in our gaping hole we have in our tax net, an otherwise brilliant tax net. It's like the most beautiful Oh, God, are you going to mention the H word in a minute? No, no. It's housing. the most housing. height, of course, yeah. There's yeah. only one thing Carry we're on. talking about, <laughs> uh, which is... Um, uh, I'm just going to go make a cup of tea. A cup of tea while I talk about capital gains tax, yeah. No, I mean, essentially, um, this tax net we have, the income tax net built in 1985, 6, 7, and then the GST net, which came 86-7, is beautiful. It's clean, it's pure, it's broad-based, mm. low rate, and would have been fantastic if only we'd had a capital gains tax to go with it. And actually... Uh, it, I had um, sort of forgotten about this, but back in 1989, David Cagle, who's also uh, one of those... Oh, Lord, there's a, there's a yeah. name from the past. Yeah, yeah. There's yeah. Anne Herkison there as well. Uh, yeah, well, yeah. Um, uh, and um, uh, the uh, current uh, New Zealand ambassador to... Uh, Aus- Dublin? Uh, Australia. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah, her, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, his name escapes me right now uh, in a senior moment. Jimmy uh, Shipley. No, definitely not. <laughs> no, definitely not. I'm kidding. Yeah, good, good, good. Um, you know, this was um, this was a big deal and they didn't get yeah. it through because they were hot. Annette King, thank you very much, Amachi. Mm. Annette King uh, was one of the, the group there uh, who um, saw an opportunity to really reform New Zealand and they almost got there. And the reason that they didn't is because effectively um, all the other reforms they did and the disunity that came about um, meant that in that last year of government they had no authority and were frankly desperate to get re-elected. 
Mm. And um, we've been paying the price ever since. And so I thought it was it was useful. Um, that's one of the things that I think I can do with the kaka is step back away from the hurly-burly and try to wrap some context. Oh, hurly-burly. There's an expression I haven't oh, yeah. heard since, since, you know, probably one of our parents died. That's yeah, a word. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. No, um, are you one of these editors who say that you should never use a word that you wouldn't use in conversation? Because that's, that's fair. Well, right. I think hurly-burly can absolutely use yeah. in conversation. I think, yeah. I think it's very, I think actually should, that might, might be a name for a new postcard, post, uh, uh, podcast. Yeah. But Bernard, on this, on this one, why, why did John Key reduce the government contribution? Well, that's exactly a good point. And uh, this effectively uh, um, blows any credibility National had in attacking the government for uh, any changes to KiwiSaver because... And French, as usual, is, is bloody editing our own bloody podcast here because he was an ass. Yeah. <laughs> There's that. Um, yeah. Um, the thing about um, the National Government of 2009 to 2017 is that it whittled away with the mm -hmm. entitlements for KiwiSaver. From memory, it halved the uh, the government contribution every year, uh, removed the requirement for yeah. uh, to employers to contribute 4%, and uh, also removed uh, the ability for people to set up KiwiSaver funds for their kids. And mm -hmm. and also get the get the uh, contribution from the terrible. government. Yeah, and at the same time, separate from KiwiSaver, turned off the government contributions to the New Zealand Super Fund, which, when you do your actuarial analysis, like the Financial Markets Authority did, you know what happens in twenty seventeen, twenty seventy, if you do this, mm -hmm. that was much, much, much more damaging for the total savings pool that we're going to need to pay for pension funds and uh, for healthcare in twenty seventy. So. The government uh, didn't make itself look good, but the national opposition um, uh, screaming like a, a, a stuck porcupine thing uh, mm. had, had no credibility either because they've um, done all sorts of dodgy things to KiwiSaver. And, of course, the, the real disappointment for me is that a generation have begun to trust and love KiwiSaver, and we're talking about two million people here, an awful lot of kids... Young people are saving money into KiwiSaver because that's the only thing they can save into if they don't have a home. And because of the way that KiwiSaver has been effectively weaponized by both parties who have agreed to it to allow mm -hmm. people to take money out of their KiwiSaver and then added to it with government money for a deposit for a first home, which in effect just pushed up the prices of houses, yeah. um, has meant that it is doubly important for 2 million New Zealanders that no one mess with KiwiSaver. Cause exactly. Because it, it's not only the thing you use to help you in retirement, it's the thing you use to get into the housing market. To get into what? Into the housing market. Oh. Because um, uh, as a first home buyer, Peter, maybe uh, if you've got a KiwiSaver fund, you can take out up to $10,000 of your own money. Your partner can take up to $10,000. The government yeah. matches that. And before you know it, you've got forty or fifty thousand dollars for your first. It just deposit. has national chipped away. Of course, we know that Labor this week, you know, rather irritatingly, poorly presented again, and uh, destructively tried to chip away. But but at least had the courtesy to do a U-turn. Is national just inherently less supportive of KiwiSaver because it wasn't its idea? Uh, definitely, and also, frankly, doesn't trust long-term investments in anything else but a house. Ah. So ultimately, everything is it is it true then that New Zealand is basically a housing market with a um, with bits tacked or, or an, with an economy attached? Ex exactly, mm. um, trademark mm. burner tech. Yeah. <laughs> that's mine. I'm taking that one. Uh, so yes, so that's KiwiSaver is really a a parable for um, the New Zealand economy in that um, both sides of, par of Parliament are now effectively. Um, using it or abusing it uh, as uh, um, an alternative or a tool through which you can save for uh, your first home. So that's yeah. the thing about KiwiSaver now is that it's become more than just a savings vehicle for. No, it's incredibly important because like, I, you know, having I, I actually also would like some financial advice, not necessarily from you, but from the audience. So I'm self-employed and I'm old, but it still seems to me as though. Um, KiwiSaver is something that I should do. Well, you certainly and get the, the the contribution every year from yeah. the government, which is around about five hundred dollars if you contribute as well. So there's five hundred dollars of free money. Secondly, um, 
if you were, um, it's always a good idea to have a regular uh, savings savings plan. It's quite good, good, good better to have regular income, which I don't have because we're not making any money out of this bloody podcast yet. <laughs> but yeah, carry on. Got to work on that. Um, so it is it is useful to have KiwiSaver for that sort of thing. And if you were interested in buying your first home, Peter, although I suspect you're yes. past that. <laughs> Um, then it is really useful. So um, it's been a big week for KiwiSaver. And I, fantastic to see uh, Professor Robert Patman has joined us. Great yeah, to Robert, see do you. Robert, do you have a KiwiSaver? So, yes. Yeah. And, and also, because I, I want to, uh, we're going to keep, shall we keep talking about domestic politics for a minute? Of course. Yeah, no, sure. it's interesting. Is that right? Go for it. Because, but, but do, um, uh, Robert, I, I haven't talked about quite when you came from the UK, but presumably, You've had ISIS and things, because John Major, as I recall it, introduced ISIS, the, um, uh, the uh, I forget what ISIS stands for, actually. Um, independent, uh, no, no, um, yeah, independent savings account, no. No, not independent, but anyway, it's, it's, no. a, it's a fabulous scheme, and it, and it expanded from being cash savings to equities to virtually anything. And the amount of wealth, that, and it's tax-free, the amount of the return on it is tax-free, uh, you unfortunately do pay it on your taxable income rather than your pre-tax income, which is always annoying. But it is a remarkable way to um, bring, uh, you know, to give people uh, a nest egg. Yeah. Because as we know, through incremental um, contributions, whether it's to superannuation or to something like this, and as you say, compound interest, as long as as long as uh, Craig's and Jarden and, and Milford don't suck, you know, all of the fees out of it. Uh, you can actually do incredibly well over time. Yeah, mm. and, the, and the difference between the British system and our <clears> system <throat> is that there is a proper um, tax benefit from the yeah. British government to ISA, which is individual savings account. Individual, holders. that's correct, yeah. And, and, but in New Zealand, um, that effectively is not there. And one of the reasons uh, that housing has become so preferred in New Zealand is that unlike anywhere else in the world, we don't have subsidies for people to save into their own pensions as they go and uh, so it's which tax- again was a roger douglas thing right because he felt it was distortionary yes and would have been fine if they had included the capital gains tax and by not completing yeah, yeah. the capital gains tax trifecta they left open a big I, hole that okay, i think you're you know i think we need to get roger douglas on next time to talk about ukraine we won't talk to him about tax or anything like that. We'll just get him on. We'll get Robert to talk about tax and you to talk and, and Roger Douglas to call. Yeah, short conversation. That could, that could be yeah. entertaining. Yeah. And then we can get, get Richard Prebb along to talk about why everybody else is an idiot except him. Yeah, no, he'd be good at that. Um, fantastic. No, so that's that's all. That's the New Zealand situation. Ukraine? Do you want to go for Ukraine, Peter? Sure. Yeah. Well, I just funny enough... I was just having a little a little sit down uh, before before Robert came in and before we, we went in on air and found the most astounding video of HIMARS rockets being launched by, uh, and I, I'll, I'll find, try and find the link and put it up on the thing, HIMARS rockets, which are these um, highly mobile, multi, mm. multi, multiple launch rockets that seem to have changed the situation on the battlefield. And I think there were 18 being launched in the dark uh, from three separate HIMARS um, uh, installations or trucks and it was it looked like Christmas, but it most certainly was not going to be Christmas at the other end when the when it landed on who whatever Paul Rusky was there. And you know, the, these things do appear to have changed the situation on the battlefield. They're a hell of a weapon by the looks of it, because they I think they're 80 mile range, mm. Robert. And yeah, very um, precise. Yeah, I'm just gonna go and sit in my armchair and get a pipe to um <laughs> while I go through Jane's fighting Jane's fighting uh bits and pieces of fate of fighting appliances. But Robert, what, what do you think is happening? We, we've talked on this and I've talked in my various uh, spin-off things about the, the uh, long-awaited Ukrainian pushback. Yeah. It's happening, isn't it? It is. And uh, I, I think we're seeing gradually an incremental... Uh, I don't think the counteroffensive is going to be particularly speedy, but I think it's against the backdrop of a steady weakening of... Russian softening up of Russian positions mm-hmm. in the south. I think what we've seen, um, as well as um, the uh, missile attacks in Crimea, which were a major blow, yeah, yeah, Mr. Putin having illegally seized um, Crimea in 2014. Um, this is very much part of what is seen as Putin's gains in the Ukraine, and so these are being placed in jeopardy now. And in addition. Um, there's been a serious 
of high-profile assassinations of... There's been a lot of focus on Daria Dugina, mm. um, but um, there have been a number of high-profile people associated with Putin who have been killed in the last month. So there's been a steady sort of um, very strategic... Um, calibrated attempt mm-hmm. to weaken the Russian position. And now we have this counteroffensive. The early reports suggest that they are making some progress, um, mm-hmm. the Ukrainians, but it's coming at some cost as well. But I think that, you know, um, it, it's very interesting because Karl von Clausewitz, the great strategist, always argued that uh, defenders of a land ultimately have the long-term advantage mm. unless the attacker can quickly overwhelm the target of their attention. Um, the defenders, as long as the conflict goes on because of their knowledge of the country, but also their motivation, they've got nowhere else to go, um, can begin to get the upper hand. And I think we're beginning to see this. Mm. <clears throat> Make no mistake about it. The, the stakes for Mr. Putin are extremely high around Kherson. But, and, uh, but you can see that yeah. he's putting the pressure back onto Ukraine's allies in Europe by turning off the oh, gas. Yeah. So two days ago, the gas was completely turned off through Nord Stream yeah. 1. In theory, it's a maintenance down, down time, mm. but no one really yeah. believes that. And uh, yeah. we saw the absolutely astonishing uh, price of wholesale uh, gas in Europe go to €1,000 per megawatt hour, which is up from a 100% increase. Yeah. yeah, but as Boris Johnson says, if we all start, if we buy a new kettle, we'll be fine. <laughs> I don't know whether you saw that absolutely ludicrous. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and, and then somebody pointed out, of course, that it would actually be cheaper to just boil water on the hob, yeah. probably in an open, you know, or just pour it out of the bath or something, as long as you didn't use electricity to do it. Yeah. Um, just going back, John Irving on the, on the chat, uh, Robert asks why, why why we don't think that the Ukrainians have yet blown up the bridge from from Crimea. I, I think that initially that was probably partly because there were so many Russian tourists driving over it that it would have been yeah. slightly rude to do that. But what do you think? Well, that's an interesting question. I think the Ukrainians have very good intelligence, and I think what they're trying to do is foster domestic resistance to Putin, mm-hmm. and they may well be making strategic decisions about whether to attack the bridge in light of that. Would it actually help them uh, in in light of their objectives? Yeah, I wondered about that too, because they've been very, you know, the the bridges and stuff, the infrastructure that they've been prepared to destroy seems to be either bridges that are behind, that are, you know, that are are what Russia is going to need to withdraw, and then they can pick off these, particularly around Kershon. And then there's there's the stuff that they, you know, where we saw with that extraordinary attack on a couple of months ago on the um, Russian people trying to get across a bridge and across on uh, pontoons when they got rather um, wet. Yes, but what they have done, and quite ruthlessly, is destroyed all the bridges around Mm. the Kherson area, which means that um, the Russians could be facing a situation. They can currently, uh, they have very well supplied troops in place, but many observers believe that within two or three weeks, you know, Russian troops could become quite isolated there, which could lead to a very difficult situation for Putin. And, of course, Mm -hmm. they're desperately trying to avoid that situation. But, uh, yeah, it is an interesting question about um, the the Crimean Bridge. And uh, I do think um, this is a very calculating government in in Ukraine, and I think Mm -hmm. they've weighed up that... Um, in an authoritarian state, there's no accurate way to measure public support for what Mr. Putin's doing. Um, but I think they've made the decision that they want to try to, as much as they can um, mobilize support against Putin within Russia. Mm. D- D- Robert, I think that's part of the calculation. Robert, how important is the you know the the Russian winter in all of this? There seems to be an acceleration of uh, pressure from both sides. The Ukrainians realizing that their supporters behind them in Europe are being put under enormous pressure by these price hikes yeah. and um, a looming recession, 22% inflation expected in Britain. Uh, <laughs> and you can see that, you know, uh, the Ukrainians are desperate to use every weapon they've got as soon as they've got it. And the Russians on the other side, with uh, Putin turning off the gas 
uh, because he can, frankly, he's selling all his oil to India and to China mm. and a lot of the gas actually to China that as well. prices though. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. But he's still but, but making it, more it, money it? now than he was before, even oh, yeah. with, the, mm. with the oil and the gas. So he doesn't have a money problem. And it's like this race against time to see how long the Europeans can, can hold on before they break. On balance, though, I think Ukraine's better positioned to fight a long war than Putin. That's a very interesting idea. But he's got, because uh, he hasn't mobilized or what? Uh, he's very nervous about mobilizing and calling upon young people to fight in the Ukraine from places like Moscow and St. Petersburg. Um, I think he's very nervous about the level of the, there seems to be a domestic armed domestic resistance group now mm -hmm. in Russia. We don't know how effective it well, is. Well, it's been named, yeah. You mean, you mean the people who supposedly blew up the the um, the, the Crimea airports, aerodromes? Uh, no, I was referring to a series of episodes that have occurred in Belgorod, yep. which is um, mm -hmm. uh, close to the Ukrainian border. Um, again, we, we you know it's very difficult to know in the fog of war exactly claims and counterclaims. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, I, I think. Putin is not in a strong position. Um, I think there's a lot of discontent in the Russian military, and I think there's a lot of discontent in the FSB, intelligence circles. And, um, uh, you know, did, I, I did think you see that the, he really did, needs quick victories. Yeah. Did you see the fantastic footage of Putin with a stony face um, getting an update from one of, one of the Russian generals who said, you know, our troops are being welcomed, welcomed like, you know, conquering heroes by the... Uh, by the Ukraine, by the Ukrainians in the areas that are being liberated, and it was just you know even Putin couldn't crack a smile at that one. Yeah, well, that's the fate of all dictators. They remove anybody who tells them the truth, and they're reduced to listening to what they know is lies from yeah. sycophants. Just going back to the gas thing, Bernard, I, I, and I and, and Robert may have something to comment on this when, it, when he's um, not thinking about key, his Kiwi saver, but it seems that one of the triggers for the um, closure of of Nord Stream One was the, the uh, information that um, Europe appears to have got to about 80, 85% of the gas storage that it wanted to have at the start of winter. And even the UK is reopening a dormant gas storage facility in the North Sea called Rough, which I, you know, R-O-U-G-H, not, not rough like a dog. Um, but it was quite, it's very interesting that you, you know, the UK has much more access, it would appear to LNG from, you know, Kuwait and Qatar and so on. Uh, Qatar, rather. Um, uh, Spain has relatively good gas supplies from, from North Africa. But the, UK, the, the, the Europe has quietly, particularly Germany, actually accumulated not a bad stockpile. And that seemed to be the main reason for pulling the plug on North, Nord Stream, it seemed to me. Or there yeah, was, yeah, no, they, not, that, not that coincidence is causality, yeah, the, correlation, the, rather. The um, intensity of the contest between Russia and Germany, Germany racing to fill its... Uh, supplies before the winter and Russia squeezing the tap to try to um, uh, put the economic pressure on Germany is, is really ramping things up. Mm. Your point about them filling up the supplies, yes, they're going to have enough so that the poorest people will have some gas so that they don't freeze to death in the winter. But the real problem well, is... Except in Britain, because that, that would actually oh, be extremely yeah. convenient for the Tories at the moment. Uh, yeah. on, I we'll mean, this is another story. Um, but, but uh, you know, there's going to be a lot of industry that is literally going to close down over the winter mm. to ensure that those people have some warmth uh, in Germany and in Northern Europe. And we've already seen some of the heaviest users, the smelters in particular, that have um, turned off because they're using a lot of electricity mm. and the price is brutal. And the price of gas is tenfold its normal levels. And right across Europe right now, you're seeing governments coming up with support packages for people so that they can pay their bills through the winter. And the European Union did something absolutely extraordinary this week, which was to announce that they're effectively going to take control of the electricity market mm. to disconnect it from the gas price. This, this is pure state intervention in a massive Oh, Bernie, that's right up your alley. Well, certainly, yeah. what's interesting is that more than half of the Tory voters in this leadership campaign say they want to nationalise the electricity companies. Yes, in well, they certainly want to nationalise water in the UK now that they've got poo running down the streets like Wellington, yeah. basically, so, or so into the, all of the... The, pressure, the political pressure is and the economic pressure is really intense, 
not only on the inflation side but on the economic side because it looks like that Europe, the continental Europe is going into a recession at exactly the same time they're going to have double-digit inflation. And in Britain this week, the sort of big news, apart from it looks like Liz Truss is going to get the um, mm. top job, is that, uh, and she's saying all sorts of nutty things, but... Very nutty things. Uh, she's yeah. going to make Boris Johnson look, look like a bloody <laughs> I know, statesman. I know. Um, uh, what, what's happening there is that the uh, fuel bills are going to double and treble through the, through the winter. Mm. And um, not only that, they're going to have a, 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 a recession plus... <laughs> 22% inflation, according to a Goldman Sachs forecast last night. And they don't have that anywhere near that sort of income growth coming in and wages. Mm. No, it's so, extremely interesting and extremely dangerous. And this is where I'm, I might, you know, being being a, uh, you know, a PhD and a professor like, like Robert um, and, you know, deeply steeped in these things for the last 20 minutes, um, I have a feeling that that, you know, well, that is clearly Putin's tactic is to hurt hurt the Western, Western coalition and alliance by, because you know Boris has said you know this is part of the cost of supporting yep. Ukraine. I don't think that particularly helps when you're in penge and uh, mm. you know you've had to cut your own legs off because your extremities have got frostbite. Yeah, yeah, yeah but I, I, I agree with you what you're saying, uh, Peter. But you know, on the other hand, look at it from Putin's point of view. He's using food and you know energy weapons at his disposal because if you looked at the Yale study on the impact of sanctions. They are really going to buy. You mentioned winter; they have a cumulative mm. impact on the Russian economy. Yeah, and um, I think he's extremely nervous about the popular impact of that. I agree. In, in Russia, yeah, it's um, so interesting. So it, I'm just yeah, on the gas kind of a race against time. Yeah, it's so interesting. This like I had a German friend around for lunch who'd just been back to Germany, and the it made such sense. Uh, under Helmut Kohl and successive leaders, but particularly, of course, under Schroeder, who Gerhard Schroeder, who had his own uh, hand in the cookie jar as well. And and, and how, a hand. how was he ever going to get back into Germany without being accused of treason? Well, yeah, he's 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 the sort of Edward Snowden of German politics now. He's going to be staying in Moscow for quite a while, I would say. <laughs> but you know, he 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 put the training wheels on Putin. But you know, the, the logic of mm. of that approach of Germany creating a combined economic uh, dependency between Moscow and and uh, and Bonn as it was then was deeply logical you know and, and Moscow, so Moscow couldn't possibly have wanted to destroy its own European gas market and they've done it you know it is the most extraordinary self-inflicted wound but, but Moscow like to quote Boris Johnson thought they could have their cake and eat it they yeah. thought that they could put the screw on and Germany would just Cave. Acquiesce, and uh, that's been a big shock yeah. for the the Putin leadership. They're absolutely furious. Um, I s saw a couple of Russian um, programs this week uh, with their Putin's propagandists on them, and they're absolutely furious with uh, uh, the German leadership at the moment. And of course, they're even more angry because it's not just um, Schroeder who was very pro-Russian, but a number of top officials that I think have been detained this week in Germany who um, also have been uh, apparently playing, be, being very, uh, um, uh, how should I put it, uncooperative in a number of areas in relation to um, with the attempts by the German government to coordinate sanctions. Oh, what an incredible surprise. Would these be the same people like the heads of Nordstrom who, were, who used to have former Stasi agents? Well, it, it's a very interesting thing. Uh, Jessica Berlin, who is excellent, a German analyst, she, if you go to her Twitter... Yeah, with, site, an, with a deeply ironic name. Yeah. yeah, but she is extremely good, and uh, I think she's been giving a very good analysis of the conflict in Ukraine. And, uh, yeah, it, it seems that, I think coming back to your point, Putin's strategy must be to break opinion, or divide opinion, I should say, um, in the Western Europe and the rest of the world, and therefore leave re Ukraine relatively isolated. But I think many people in Europe... Um, will take the view that while they're not happy about their current situation, they may be even less happy about the alternative of Putin retaining sizable territory in yeah. Ukraine yeah. and being rewarded for his aggression. I mean, most European people do actually remember what happened last time people tried to appease someone who was quite fond of grabbing territory oh, the in Europe. Gone to to 
mm. even mm. bigger conflict. So, or is it just at my place? Yeah. Mm. So, uh, w- one thing that I found fascinating about this week is that uh, yes, you're right. Uh, Germany has, you know, had to give up on this dream of a interdependent Russia and Germany, which started ultimately with the um, hope that came out of Perestroika and, you know, one dictator who actually did voluntarily give up power was Mikhail Gorbachev. Mm. What, what do you think of um, Gorbachev's legacy uh, this week? Well, I think Gorbachev was a remarkable man, but I think he was, you know, he tried to institute top-down change and... In a sense, in retrospect, it was not surprising that you you know that the attempt to democratize an authoritarian one-party state didn't work. And he he when he said you know when he took over as general secretary of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union in, in March 1985, he didn't want the breakup of the Soviet no. sphere of Eastern Europe. It was the unintended consequences of what. So in a sense. Um, what was remarkable about Gorbachev is that he underwent a, a personal evolution himself. And by 1988, he basically had jettisoned Marxism and Leninism, something he passionately mm-hmm. believed in when he came to power in 1985. Um, he, what was a remarkable and I think genuine about Gorbachev was that he realized the Cold War couldn't continue. And um, he hoped that the Soviet Union could actually freed of the Cold War, thrive and perhaps reclaim some of the ideals which Lenin had when the Soviet Union was formed. But he was, and he was also prepared to accept a slightly course. smaller Soviet Union. I mean, it, it, I often think about this, and it, if we see the way, and forgive, forgive me, because I think I must have, must have been my internet connection that went out for a second there when you guys were unfortunately allowed to keep uh, blabbing on, although maybe Bernard was cancelling me again. Oh, uh, yes, yes, um, I was pushing the button as hard as I could. But you know, it, it is a disgraceful thought that Putin that there is no state funeral for for um, for Gorbachev, and and it was very interesting to see Dmitry Peskov, Putin's press secretary, describing Putin of uh, uh, Gorbachev really as a failed romantic who had underestimated the bloodlust of Russia's enemies. I mean, I keep thinking about that telephone call that. Putin describes, which may be mythical, but was a, a sort of a, a, a metaphorical telephone call from Dresden um, when he was uh, shredding, shred, you know, burning, burning hell out of the shredder in, um, in the KGB office in Dresden. And they called Moscow, and there was no reply. You know, and and if you remember, Honecker called called uh, Gorbachev and was more or less told, "Let them go." You know, yeah, that was G- his great achievement. In, in my view. Gorbachev's great achievement was to resist the pressure of the hardliners, people which Putin instinctively aligned with, to crush um, the growing people power in Eastern Europe. He refused Mm. to intervene using force um, when there was a clear groundswell of popular revolt in places like Hungary and the Czech Republic. And I think that was courageous on his part. And I think we should remember, but it's just, just Robert, one of the things that I pointed out in my, in my spin-off thing was, was this week was how old, how long ago this is. Oh, yeah. And I, I am old enough, you know, to remember many things, uh, but particularly, you know, to remember all of those Trabants pouring out of East Germany, all of those thousands of people in the gardens of the uh, east of the GDR embassy in Hungary, you know, all of those, that was just the most extraordinary movement. And, and also mm. the fact that Poland... The Czech Republic, Hungary, Romania are all f- relatively free, maybe not Hungary, but um, East Germany. These are en- mm. enormous parts of Eastern Europe where, however you look at it, most people are in a better, freer, um, better situation. They've got longer lifespans. Yeah, absolutely. They've got yeah. more ability to earn money. They've, you know, One of the reasons for the growth of the German economy in the last 20 or 30 years uh, is just the sheer scale of adding on East East Germany is as uh, unproductive and and difficult as it was, and then Poland, you know, one of the great success stories of uh, Eastern mm, yeah, Europe. Yeah, I mean, it, I think one of the re- interesting things about Putin's attitude towards Gorbachev is it reflects the great divide um, over the future of Eastern Europe. I mean, Putin basically is trying to recreate a sphere of influence in Eastern Europe. And if he yeah, succeeds yeah. in Ukraine, it won't be confined to the Ukraine. 
That's why the other Eastern European countries are piling in behind the Ukraine because they recognize this. Whereas Gorbachev basically accepted that Russia, he, he seemed to genuinely believe in the principle of self-determination. And he, he recognized you couldn't endorse the principle of self-determination, but then deny it to others. Yeah. Mr. Putin yeah. regarded the collapse of the Soviet Union as a, a geopolitical tra- you know, tragedy. So in, in a sense, Mr. Putin is still trying to recreate the past. And mm. that's probably why he's so bitter towards Gorbachev. Uh, because Gorbachev but, set Robert, in motion process that undermined the Soviet Union. But isn't it also fair to fair to con- directly connect Putin and the kind of person he's become, the kind of regime that he's inserted, essentially a KGB kleptocracy, with exactly the people who led the coup against Putin, against uh, Gorbachev? Oh, yeah. You know, it yeah, is I the mean, most extraordinary sort of rather deft, you know, we were talking, you know, this, that really is a backflip that you that you launch a coup. Yeltsin Yeltsin you know succeeds, introduces a form of democracy, then imposes Putin on the country, mm. and we've got the same people who would have who would have kept Gorbachev um, you know locked up in Sochi. Speaking of autocracies oppressing populations, the United Nations Human Rights Commission oh. a report. Good segue there, I think. The hu- well, it was an okay segue. I've got a better one, but carry on. <laughs> the United <laughs> Nations hu- Human Rights Commissioner, Michelle Bachelet, who is just leaving, in fact, an hour before she was about to go after her first term, the one where she really aggravated so many people by being apparently friendly to the Chinese. Well, this report came out effectively concluding that China... Uh, was oppressing the Uyghurs and uh, was potentially um, involved in uh, uh, acts of um, uh, genocide in, in effect. No, no, except that it didn't use the word genocide. No, that's right. So what, they so literally what, didn't. That's, it's pretty critical that they, they yeah. literally did not use the word so, genocide. So what was the phrase that they did use in the end was crimes against humanity? Very, being very, very, very... Potential crimes against humanity. Potential crimes yeah. against humanity, which... Nanaya Mahuta came out last night with a pretty strong statement, I thought, uh, in support of the UN's report. Yeah, I thought so too. She was very deft, and yet Jerry Brownlee Off. said basically it's all about terrorism. What the hell is going on there? I even saw that was picked up in Australia as yet another soft cock piece of New Zealand yeah. uh, behaviour towards China. What's going on there, Robert? So, so, so Robert, oh, well, that's without, a good without, question. Uh, without using that particular teams, phrase yeah. as analysis, can you tell us what's going on? It, it was interesting to me when John Key condemned uh, Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan and now we have uh, Jerry Brownlee you know basically soft peddling a bit really this, mm. this no other way of, you know this uh, from, this yeah, from I mean it's it certainly Jerry Brownlee's comments will certainly raise eyebrows in I think the other uh, members of the five eyes when he says it's you know I mean he even said their legislation about terrorism is not that different to what we have in New Zealand he needs his head red. It's extraordinary. And I, I think um, this is something that needs to be confronted within the National Party. They have yeah. yet to really disconnect themselves from a fairly ugly period when the National Party received various funds from various people connected to the United Front. And uh, we, the National Party is still not really fessed up or uh, understood the gravity of inviting in a former Chinese military intelligence trainer as an mm. MP to then become the chair of the Foreign Exchange, uh, Foreign, Foreign, Foreign Affairs, Affairs Select and, Committee. And Trade yeah. Collect Select Committee. And then to have this, this MP, who is now mm. uh, gone, MP host Jerry Brownlee and Simon Bridges to visit the chief spy of China without the approval or awareness yeah. of MFAT. Just an absolutely extraordinary thing that um, the uh, National Party, where Peter Goodfellow, who's seen as closely connected to, to these uh, The, the inaptly named Peter Goodfellow. Yeah, you mean. Uh, is, yeah, is still there on the board of the National Party. Um, I, I'm sort of stunned that uh, there hasn't been a, a proper self-examination by the National Party into this. Robert, do you have a yeah, view I on mean, this? You're absolutely right, Bernard, because you know, it's all very well saying it's all about terrorism, but why, why do we worry about terrorism? Well, if you're a liberal democracy, you worry about terrorism because terrorism is a threat to human rights and the rule of law and people's ability to go about their business without the state interfering unnecessarily. And, and so, you know, in a sense, they just haven't thought this through. 
And also um, un- unaware of the extraordinary reporting that's been done, not just by media, but all sorts of mm. um, NGOs, Human Rights Watch, um, uh, Amnesty International, and the reporting that's come out of Xinjiang uh, is very serious. And you know, the yeah. Re- even the Republicans in the United States have been very, very aggressive on this, passing laws to ban people from mm. trading. Uh, with um, companies uh, connected to the military and the government in Xinjiang, to the point where it's a bit of a problem now to get solar panel supplies out of China, and yeah. and and also a lot of the um, uh, a lot of the clothing <laughs> and uh, um, textiles coming out of that part of China are are a problem. So, I'm shocked actually that the yeah, slave labor is extremely cheap, isn't it? Yes, they're very good value. Uh, no. I think I think uh, Nanaima Hooter's strong statement actually recognises that na- um, national are slightly ambivalent mm. about China and human rights, and I think this was a quite a clever attempt to exploit it. Uh, you know, it shouldn't be forgotten that when there was the Huawei crisis back in 2019, mm-hmm. when the, you know this digital giant Chinese company uh, was denied access to the 5G network in this country. There were one or two voices in the National Party insisting the government should go and apologise. Really? And I think the danger for National is um, that I don't think most Kiwis, whatever their political... Uh, ...kowtowing to China for economic reasons. Mm. And uh, I, I think this is a you know an issue that is sensitive, but I, I think, as you said earlier, Bernard, I think perhaps national need to think through their position on China. Yeah. Because I think human rights do matter to Kiwis. It's not that we want to sever the economic connection or anything like that, but I don't think it, I don't think most Kiwis will accept um, economic links at the expense of core values and interests of this country. Um, I wonder if that's true. We should we should take a poll and find that out. But I, I, one one aspect of this that interests me enormously, and there was a someone we've had on the show before, and I think you've you've been with him, Robert, was at this um, uh, unattributable event I was at last week, and just come back from 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 looking at China, and his view was that was that uh, Key is still living in his era, that China he hasn't fully fully understood how much. Or embraced how much she has moved. No, that he loved the motorcades. That he loved that. And there was that moment mm. of potential connection with she, but that she has become far more Maoist than than anyone ever imagined. And that we're not, you know, it isn't possible to have that kind of open relationship with China we used to have. And, and yeah, also- China is a very different country from the China that we signed the free trade agreement with in two thousand and eight, and it's got an enhanced consciousness of growing military and economic mm. might. And it wants the perks that go with it. And China has quite a hierarchical view of the world. So we are a useful small country to China. Um, and I think China will be loath to fall out with both Australia and New Zealand simultaneously. But I, I do think it was interesting listening to Nanaima Huta's comments because I thought they were very robust and appropriate, actually. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I think that was... Uh, a bit of a signal to the Chinese that uh, this country does take human rights seriously and don't think um, just because we have a very good trade relationship with China that, you know, we're going to remain absolutely uh, stum or mum on human rights. And the interesting thing about national stance is that it's completely out of whack with other Conservative Party stances around the world on China. So not only do the Republicans take a very hard line, but the Liberal Party in Australia take a hard line. And uh, and this is my other segue back to the last big event on the international scene. Are you segueing sideways or backwards or forwards, Ben? Uh, sideways to Liz Truss, I think. Mm-hmm. So, Lynn Truss, yeah, Liz, Liz Truss, yeah, Liz yeah, Truss, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, National was out of step with other Conservative parties around the world. Liz Truss, who's likely to be the Prime Minister in Britain on Monday, has said that she will declare China a severe threat, which is the same phrase used to describe Russia. And Mm. it is uh, Britain's um, MI6 and uh, their version of the GCSB, which has been most aggressive at uh, understanding the influence campaigns from China into various countries. 
and and also you know they've had their fair share of scandals in Britain too with various MPs and people close to centres of power who turns out were very close to uh, United Front parties. So. I think that's the other thing. National are like out of touch not only with most New Zealanders, they're out of touch with most conservative views in the rest of the world. And Liz Truss, for all her um, faults, and we were just about to talk about, <laughs> uh, is is uh, is being very aggressive on, on this. Peter, you, you're you know you spend a lot of time in in Britain, some of it reporting from the British Parliament. Um, what do you make of Liz Truss as the likely next Prime Minister of Britain? I think she's absolutely barking mad, really. And and the you know Dominic Dominic Cummings describes uh, Boris Johnson as a as a shopping trolley with a broken wheel. You know, you just can't keep it on track. You know, I think she's got two broken wheels, um, and she's just spinning around. And I, you know, it, it, she's a kind of um, cardboard cutout of Margaret Thatcher without without the integrity and without the the depth. Um, well, well, that's that's the thing. Know, but, about it's, but apparently, some of the internal polling or the polling in the Tory Party does suggest that Rishi, Rishi Sunak is, um, is emerging a little stronger. But I thought one of the more extraordinary things from Rory Stewart, the uh, irritatingly clever man who has the most popular podcast in the UK, not not dissimilar to ours, the rest is politics, is that Boris is going to sit, you know, step back a little bit and watch this oh. extraordinary shit fight unfold. <laughs> and uh, conceivably step back in again, which yeah. would be—I don't know—just you know, listen to his his video, his thing this week about about the kettles is so ludicrous and so. And he also, of course, took a day before leaving, you know, effectively leaving Downing Street, more or less, uh, announced seven hundred million dollars of investment in a new, in, a new, in the Sizewell nuclear power station, and said, you know, I'm I'm launching a new nuclear program. You know, he's basically gone nuclear a day before leaving. It's bizarre. I, I think the interesting thing, though, about the, the 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 leadership contest for the Conservative Party leadership is that, in a sense, um, all the Brexiteers are right. Most of them are behind Liz Truss, who ironically mm. was a Remainer. Yeah, but she's seen as a and, a and I think they are genuinely frightened of Sunak because Sunak, in a sense, uh, what you know, he he's pretty ruthless and unprincipled. Uh, and pretty right wing, but he's Those also intellectually there. bright, and he might learn on the job, which yeah. means he yeah. might work out that Brexit has brought an absolute disaster for Britain, and he may have to do something about it, which of course causes nightmares. So it's very interesting that basically uh, to appease the very formidable and influential Brexit group within the Conservative Party. You probably have to have a lightweight in power because that's the only one who's acceptable. After all, they they were falling over Johnson. They were falling over Johnson when he mm. first became leader. He said he was another Churchill. You've just and, reminded um, me of that fantastic phrase of the of, of the only fantastic phrase that Starmer has ever uttered, more or less, was the charge of the lightweight white, lightweight brigade. But <laughs> you know, Starmer applies, applies to him as well because he can't. Well, this is the trouble. Yeah. Mentioned mention Brexit. And how could what well, he's decided? You know, he's he's decided that that Labour Party understands and accepts that Brexit was the last fight, and that they're not going to go. They're not going to advocate yeah, for going back. Peter, you can't. You know, you know better than I do. You can't shrink participation in a tariff-free market mm. of five hundred and fifty mm. million, then make it sixty-five million, and tell people that you're going to make it work better than the bigger version. And uh, that's what if you, they haven't been able to deliver on one single promise so far. And the thing and, about uh, and the thing about Liz Truss is that she has promised, if Prime Minister, to effectively rip up the one or two remaining proper connections with Europe, potentially spark mm-hmm. a trade war, get rid of this um, middle of the sea um, Northern Ireland uh, um, pseudo border thing, and is also, and from a purely economic um, financial point of view, has essentially said she will cut income taxes, potentially wants to cut the value added tax. Uh, give everyone a hundred billion pound um, energy payment, and bombs away. And bombs away. Essentially, yeah. she is saying, "I'm just going to borrow, and my supply side economics is somehow correct." When for the last thirty but, years it wasn't. But there's huge contradiction there, though, because if Britain wants to borrow a lot of money, it needs to have good international relations. And if Britain uh, moves, as she's promised to, within the first twelve days by um, basically breaching international law and amending the Northern Ireland Protocols, Britain will be more isolated. Now, the Biden administration have told the British 
there will never be a free trade agreement if Britain undermines the Good Friday Accord. Mm. And what's more, if Britain has any serious aspirations to get into the comprehensive and progressive Trans-Pacific Partnership, oh. it can kiss that goodbye mm. if mm. it undermines the Good Friday Accord. Bernard, I just, I just looked up the... Because uh, I think you know off by, heart, off by heart what the New Zealand government debt is as a, as a percentage of GDP, which I think is something like 20%. The UK's is a stunning 99%. Exactly. So the latitude... Her economic latitude to borrow is not absolutely sensational. And Rishi Sunak said this week that there was a real risk if uh, Liz Truss got in that the financial markets would lose complete confidence in Britain, which would essentially mm. massively increase interest rates and massively reduce the pound, which would, of course, force even more inflation into the British economy. So the, the Britain is on a precipice here, and they've got to be a little mm. bit careful that they don't uh, have some sort of early 70s Conniption. moment yeah. where but, but essentially the, they were bankrupt. The disturbing thing is, uh, Bernard, is that there doesn't seem to be an appreciation within the ruling Conservative Party no. of just how disastrous their leadership, <laughs> Mr Johnson, has been for the position. The two, li the two contenders are talking as if everything is great and they're just going to give it a new twist yeah. or a, a new a, a new a new momentum what, it's a very serious situation in the uk and what concerns me about this is that you have effectively people working in a bubble talking to each other believing their own hype thinking that they're the only part of the conversation mm. which um increasingly we're seeing in uh, political conversations where mm. people from different points of view are not actually talking to each other not even hearing each other all, all they're hearing is their own bubble talking to itself and I, I wrote a piece um, today, <laughs> unlike, unlike, unlike us, of course. Yeah. Uh, I wrote a piece today. I, which I'm actually surprised you don't just talk to a mirror on this podcast, having cancelled me last week. Oh, I'm surprised you even let, let poor old Robert no, no, have, no, I'm, a, have I'm, a I'm very have keen a to have a, have a robust conversation where, you know, we, we challenge each other. It's good. Um, mm -hmm. and, and I wrote a piece today which talked about um, how I think, and maybe you have a different point of view, P Peter, uh, but uh, I think that the iPhone 4, uh, which really enabled the uh, transfer of social media onto phones and happened at the same time as 4G uh, was rolled out cheaply and at great... You're still, um, you're still on an iPhone 4, aren't you? <laughs> no, no, I'm only like an iPhone 8. <coughs> an 8. It still works fine. It's good. Hmm. Um, so that 2010 moment, the launch of the iPhone 4, and also in the wake of the GFC, uh, was a moment when the political environment globally turned for the worse, and we are seeing an increasing polarisation, an increasing um, problem where parties don't bother to try to appeal to the centre or try to govern for everyone. They've, either in the United States, gerrymandered their way into power and therefore the only people you need to convince to vote for you are your own supporters because you've got a guaranteed seat. Well, but Bernard thinks he's become bloody Francis Fukuyama. Oh, no, I haven't, de I haven't declared the end of history. This is the start. No, 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 but he, he, you know, he's, he, that's, he, that's a bit mean to him because he's actually just written an excellent new book on liberalism. But, but mm. yeah, I, li I like the way that you're you know, trying to pull together two huge events and pull them together. And I mean, there's a book in there. I, no, this is, this, is, uh, this is good thinking. Uh, gentlemen, I think that's happening in first-past-the-post electoral systems like mm. the US and UK. It's much more difficult to do that in a proportional representation system. And, and uh, yeah, and, and I agree of, with your analysis of the UK, though, absolutely spot on. And, and one of the problems uh, that First Past the Post have, particularly if they gerrymander the um, seats, which we were guilty of pre-MMP, there was quite a bit of that that went <clears> on, um, <throat> is that if you combine that with a party leadership uh, election system where you have to ask the actual party members as opposed to the MPs in Parliament who should be the leader, what you end up with is, just as we've seen in America, the, um, the people who want to lead their party having to appeal to the worst excesses of their party mm. members and, in the process, alienating themselves from the middle. And uh, that's fine if you can gerrymander your way in, but it's quite difficult to do in, in America where, um, in America, you still need, in theory, a majority to become the president. 
and it's very hard to gerrymander your way into the presidency, as Donald Trump descri- described, unless, of course, you can convince anyone you actually won when you didn't. And mm. um, that's the one thing I, I've taken out of this, is that we should guard our MMP system with a passion, because for all yes. its faults about um, you know, the tyranny of the centre, at least it's the tyranny of the centre, not the tyranny of the extremes, and also... Um, Luckily for us, both the National and Labour Party have managed to keep control of their party leaderships inside the caucus, which means that MPs who know they get voted out if their leader goes extreme make sure that there is a reasonably centrist and reasonably politically appealing leader, as Mm. opposed to Judith Collins or David Cunliffe, as it turned out. So, yeah, I'm, I'm really interested in how Liz Truss will go and how the Tories get themselves out of this mess, let alone the Republicans. But I think what you've just described, Bernard, also affects the opposition in the UK because Starmer is basically trying to do what the Tories are doing. He, mm-hmm. he, he basically thinks, because it's basically a two-party system, um, that if he, focuses, if he keeps off the controversial issues like Brexit, his turn will come. And this is based, of course, on the assumption that he can win... Um, through, uh, you know, 35, 40% of the vote, uh, absolute majority support. Uh, you know, it's often forgotten that when Johnson won his so-called landslide in 2014, he had 43% of the popular vote. Mm. Uh, he couldn't form a government in, uh, without a coalition in, in this country with that sort of performance. And it also means that 18... People keep talking about the 14 million who voted Conservative 2019... Um, what they often forget is that 18 million voted for a party other than the Conservatives. So I think this is why, in, in a sense, politics has become so dysfunctional. It, it, you know, it, in a sense, people like the Labour Party and the Conservative Party are not serious about broadening their appeal to encapsulate. You know, a, a wider section of the population. I know, I know. I think I just had I this. Yeah, Brian Tamaki is the only way now. I no, see. no, no, <laughs> definitely not. No, um, and actually, I I do can see starting to see form a way through in the centre um, for some change, particularly around top and to party Māori. Um, one of the things I learnt from our discussion with Raf Manji a couple of weeks ago is that he genuinely thinks he can win either. And in, on on reflection, he could do a deal with either National or Labour, maybe both, mm. which means he gets Ilam and brings in the 1% or 2% or 3%. Am I right in remembering that Jerry, Jerry Brownlee, the, the foreign, foreign Secretary for Beijing West, went to... Um went to uh, the list, is that right? Yes, that's exactly right. And so what I I think there is the potential for one of these centrist parties to um, form up with either uh, National or Labour, unlike the Greens who are um, welded to to Labour. And that may um, shift the logs a little bit in the middle. But again, Mm. um, we're Mm. appealing to reasonably, you know, centrist votes. And the good thing is that um, the extremists of the likes of Brian Tamaki... Bernard, shall we, who, shall who, we by finish the way, with a story that I know... Sorry. Sure. I'm just noticing it's 1804, oh not to be your producer who doesn't exist. <laughs> Go for it. You've got to, you've got to skip... Well, I was going to say, this is something that Robert will be really, really interested in. And I'm actually... I know I shouldn't read in the podcast, but I, there's something... So I was... To say I was amused is extremely unpleasant, but the, the, the unlucky chairman of Luck Oil happened to throw himself out of or be pushed out of or fall out of a window in the hospital in Moscow. Uh, Regovil Maganov, the chairman of the Luck Oil Board, died overnight. Mm. Uh, And, of course, he's only the latest person to have fallen, thrown, slipped. Uh, And there was a very subtle thing in the FT overnight. Several mid-ranking Russian energy executives have died in unusual circumstances since the war broke out. (laughs) A day after the full-scale invasion, Alexander Pulyakov, a deputy head of gas monopoly Gazprom's treasury, was found dead in his garage. Yeah. It was a month after Leonid Shulman, an executive of Gazprom's transport subsidiary, subsidiary, was found dead in his bathroom. In July, police found Yuri Voronov, the head of the shipping company that contracts for Gazprom, dead in a swimming pool at his home in the same suburb from a gunshot wound to the head. Mm. Very hard to shoot yourself in your own swimming pool, I've understood. Uh, <laughs> and then there's a good one here, which is um, Vladislav Avaya, from Gazprom, a former Gazprom uh, vice president, uh, and his wife and daughter were found shot dead in their Moscow flat in what police say is a murder-suicide. Mm. Uh, and uh, somebody at Novatech, Sergei uh, Prochesenia, 
died in Spain along with his wife and teenage daughter in another murder-suicide, supposedly. And we have uh, to we don't we have to forget we could, shouldn't forget Salisbury. There's a fantastic yeah well it's, yeah um, yeah well there's a particularly good one in this one of another Luck Oil executive in May Alexander Subotin died of a heart attack at a rented house uh, on Moscow's outskirts, uh, and and it was reported that he was that the house belonged to a shaman and his wife who practiced esoteric medicine with toad venom, cockerel blood, and the help of spirits. And Subotin apparently uh, died after attending a seance in their house uh, where they um, uh, had given him valerian root tranquilizer. So I just, my, my message is, would our audience and you guys be please careful of the valerian root tranquilizer <laughs> and any shamans, even Bernard Hickey? Yes, uh, and cups of tea. I'm going to avoid cups of tea in Russia, I think, as well. Kakita Ako Ano, everyone. Great to thanks, see you Robert. all. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you, Robert. Thank and you thanks for having me back, Bernard. Oh, you'll be back again. Don't worry. Yeah, yeah. Bye. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah, Bye-bye. no bloody co-host now, is it? Yeah. Bye. <laughs> oh, here's the jazzy music. Here we go. I love the music. Go on. Jesus, what a bloody fiasco. 